0: Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning. Welcome to the first Money Talk of the week and the final program of the month. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast for Monday, the 31st of July. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. And thank you once again for making this one of the most listened-to financial podcasts in both Hong Kong and Singapore, according to the latest pod statistics. In today's business and finance headlines, the Bank of Japan said Friday that it will adopt a more flexible approach to controlling bond yields by allowing them to fluctuate beyond its target range altering a cornerstone of its ultra-loose monetary policy. It also updated its forecasts to predict inflation will be below target in the next fiscal year. In an unexpected move, the BOJ said it would offer to buy 10-year Japanese government bonds at 1% in fixed-rate operations, in effect widening the trading band on long-term yields. The central bank added that it was technically maintaining its previous half a percent cap on 10-year bond yields, but this level would now be a reference rather than a rigid limit. The Federal Reserve's preferred measure of inflation fell to its lowest level since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, lowering the chances of another interest rate rise in September. The US Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index rose at an annualised pace of 3% in June, down from 3.8% in May. The annualised increase in the core PCE index, which strips out volatile food and energy prices and is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, eased more than expected to a 20-month low of 4.1%. German and French inflation slowed this month to the lowest annual rate since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, prompting investors to pare back their bets of another interest rate rise from the European Central Bank. A slowdown in the cost of most goods and services in Germany helped the harmonised annual inflation rate decrease to 6.5% in july from 6.8 percent in june that's its lowest level since february 2022 lower energy costs in france lay behind a drop in inflation there in july the harmonized annual inflation rate in france decreased to five percent in july the lowest since february 2022 from 5.3 percent in june on today's programme, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex K. Y. Wong Asset Management and Sam Favre, CEO at Mandarin Capital. And in the second half of the show, I'll be talking with David Costello, the Consul General of Ireland, to Hong Kong and Macau. What is his final day as Ireland's most senior representative here in Hong Kong? And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, Peter Lewis, <laughs> On Wall Street, U.S. stocks advanced on Friday without performance in the Nasdaq as chip names soared after Intel returned to profit after two quarters of losses. The Dow and the S&P 500 closed out their third winning week in a row as a measure of inflation, closely watched by the Federal Reserve, came in at its lowest level in nearly two years. The S&P 500 added 1% to 4582 The Dow jumped 177 points, or half a percent, to 35,459. The Nasdaq Composite had its best day since late May, gaining 1.9% to 14,317. All three major averages notched weekly gains. The S&P 500 advanced 1% over the five sessions and is on the brink of its sixth advance in seven months. The Dow was up 0.7% for the week following a 13-day win streak that ended on Thursday, a length not seen since. Since 1987 and the Nasdaq was up 2%, the fall in the Fed's preferred measure of inflation has reduced the odds of another rate rise in September to just 20%. US government bond prices rose with the yield on the two-year treasury falling five basis points to 4.89%, while the yield on the 10-year note fell by five basis points to 3.96%. The change in Japan's yield curve control policy prompted a surge in the country's benchmark bond yields to the highest level in nine years. The 10-year yield on Japan's government debt climbed 13 basis points to 0.57%. The Japanese yen was the underperforming currency of the day. In volatile trading, the yen was up 1% at one stage before giving up its gains to a 1.2% lower at 141.15, or 141.15 against the dollar. Japan's Nikkei 225 slid as much as 2.6% at one stage on Friday. The benchmark index bounced back to end the day 0.4% lower at 32,759. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index jumped in its final hour of trade on Friday, adding 277 points, or 1.4%, to end the day at 19,917. For the week, the city's benchmark index gained 4.4%. And the Hang Seng Tech Index climbed 2.9% Friday for a weekly gain of 4.4%. It's risen more than 23% now from its May low, putting it in a new bull market. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. say good morning to our regular Monday morning commentator Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Morning Alex. Hi, morning Peter. And also with us is Sam Faver, Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital. Morning Sam. Morning Peter. Let me start in Japan with this uh, rather surprising Bank of Japan decision. They like said, they're going to adopt a much more flexible approach to controlling bond yields by allowing them to fluctuate beyond its target range of half a percent. This is altering a cornerstone of its ultra-loose monetary policy. Although the BOJ's Target yield on 10 year bonds is still 0% and the range is still plus or minus 50 basis points. The move effectively reduces the amount of bonds the BOJ will buy, which essentially begins the process of tightening monetary conditions. Um, Alex, if the Bank of Japan is only going to buy yields now at 1% above zero, th- this means in effect that's the new cap now, isn't it? Yeah, of course.
1: Uh, but I think uh, uh, people would still think uh, Japan would be uh, a little bit prudent in its monetary policy and would would rather stick to a, a loose policy because right now the inflation is higher than other parts of the world be- uh, mainly because uh, Japan has been in deflation for quite some time and the wage rise and price rise by Japanese companies actually is quite high so that probably is a, 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 a short-term one-off factor to catch up with other parts of the world so I think uh, that's why they want to see uh, would it be sustainable or not so I think uh, Japan probably will still be put So that's why I think the market actually um, does not uh, react too seriously. They ha- will have a shuffle in the Nikkei and then it will re- 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 the uh almost
0: um, more of the laws and then today is actually extends some gain. So is this a tightening of monetary policy? The the Bank of Japan says no, it isn't. Um, but in effect, it, that is what it's doing, isn't it? Because if you buy less bonds, if you buy them at a higher yield, you're going to be buying less bonds. That, in effect, puts less money in the system. It's a tightening of monetary policy, isn't
2: it? It's certainly reducing the loosening of the policy, which was extra loose. Uh, I think it's actually quite interesting because... They have until now not acknowledged the inflationary pressure, but they are there. And I think it's the first time they're saying, well, you know, we are looking at potentially adjusting the policy. So I think inflation is definitely in their mind. I mean, Tokyo was uh, numbers were pretty high last month and not only last month. I mean, it's been on a trend recently. So that's the first factor. I think the second factor is they also want to signal that, you know, they keep an eye on the yen. There's been a more or less a one way bet against all the currencies recently at the yen, so I think that's also signaling look we'll we'll keep an eye on you, and uh, if we need to adjust we will adjust, but I think that's you know. I don't think it's insignificant. I think they are, on the verge, potentially adjusting their policy for more more medium-term.
0: It has some significant implications, though, doesn't it, for for global markets? Because, first of all, Japan's got a huge bond market of its own. The BOJ owns about 55% of that. So, in some ways, it's, it's going to suffer huge losses, isn't it, on its bond portfolio? And then, of course, it's also a big investor in overseas government bonds in the US, in the Eurozone.
2: Well, it's a massive currency for everyone so yeah definitely that's the problem potentially having to monetize the the currency if uh, really this goes too far and uh... yeah that will create some uh, adjustment of the worldwide flows and uh... You know, the typical carry trades, which might get readjusted. So that has a potential big implication, not only in the bond markets, but also on the equity market.
0: Mm. Alex, explain a little bit more about the market reaction to this, because it was a bit confused, wasn't it? We saw the yen actually um, surge um, initially, then closed down about 1%, similarly for the Nikkei, it was down about 2.5% at one stage, then recovered most of that losses. It seems investors are not sure what this means, because the, the Bank of Japan has been dovish for years, hasn't it? So now people are sort of wondering: is there going to be some sort of change on the horizon?
1: I think the market expect the Japan Bank of Japan actually may change later on, but the timing actually may not be too too close. I think uh, it would still be um, looking for data. And as I've said, the, the, the rapid rise in the Japan price level actually is due to the long term inflation scenario in the country so i think uh the market actually is actually taking a, a wait and see attitude and they do not expect the bank of japan to to change its stance uh, substantially uh, in short short term so that's why i think the reaction is uh, is uh, such a swift
0: so do JGB yields now move up to 1% if that's the new sort of limit, or it's a target, isn't it? Um, do the markets now go and test the Bank of Japan's resolve and it gets up to 1% pretty quickly?
1: I, I think that they, they would not, but uh, the, 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 the risk is uh, we have uh, a... Um Unexpectedly, also um, uh, the uh, U.S. Treasury market as well. So mm. I think the overall the interest rate environment in the world is not too supportive uh, right now. So uh, this is a a, um, a risk to 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 monitor. I think.
0: But the the Bank of Japan's sort of destroying its own market because it owns so many of these JGBs.
1: Yeah, there's always a risk because uh, you you just corner the the the, the thing. So uh, this is a a little bit uh, difficult to unwind.
0: Yeah. So what do you do, Sam? If, if you're facing losses on your domestic portfolio of Japanese bonds, do you now look at US treasuries where maybe yields are, are much higher, but also might have, might have peaked, so sort of an opportunity to lock them in instead?
2: Are you talking about the Bank of Japan specifically or just global investors? Global
0: investors, in fact, not just the Bank of Japan. I mean, if you're a Japanese pension fund, you're potentially facing huge losses, aren't you, on these Well, that's bonds.
2: one of the issues. You might see some of these, uh, some of these uh, starting to unwind and uh, looking at some higher yielding bonds. Uh, or maybe the, you know, they will start reissuing and uh, refinance some of these lower yielding ones higher up so that's also one possibility so as I said there could be significant uh, implications but at the same time Japan needs some yield especially for those assets and pensions so uh, we need to have, start to have some uh, normalisation especially in an inflationary environment So what happens to the yen now? Uh, I think, you know, it's still going to be under pressure because this is just a signal. We haven't really seen an adjustment. I mean, we have seen such a big tightening across all the other countries. So, the interest rate differential is massive for all the other currencies. So, the natural carry is still very, very, very negative for holding yen. So, I think what's happening is there is going to be uh, still pressure on the yen, but it's going to be a lot more control now. And I think the Bank of Japan is still... Potentially looking to adjust this policy and depending on what's going on, because I think 150 is definitely a very, very psychological level for the yen. Mm. Well,
0: what would you think, Alex? What's the outlook for the
1: yen now? I think it will remain weak uh, versus other currencies, but for the it, it, but for it versus the U.S. dollar, probably it would uh, just uh, consolidate around the current level. I think uh, it would still be. In a little bit rickish uh, because of the interest differential, but mm-hmm. I think uh, the, the, the the uptrend in the dollar probably may not uh, extend too much.
0: So has, J- has inflation returned to Japan? What what do you think? I mean, the, the Bank of Japan is sort of trying to deny it, isn't it? But they have had to revise up their forecasts, although they still say for next year it's going to be below 2%, but we've got the inflation in Japan now higher than in the U.S.,
1: well, I think uh, the point is uh, the, the, the price rise by Japanese companies and uh, wage-wise actually is quite huge because they have been um, – they, they, they take the opportunity to raise the the, the, the the price by more than 10% by many companies. So that probably is a one-off. So I think uh, we need to monitor the situation
0: next year. What well, what do you think, Sam? Is inflation coming back in Japan?
2: I mean, travelling there regularly for the last six months, I think it's pretty clear that inflation is back in uh, in some sectors. I mean obviously food has been going up it's pretty obvious. I mean one of the sectors which has been extremely well performing in terms of assets is actually real estate which has been a very very bad sector for the last 20 years Well, let's say it's 15 years but it has certainly skyrocketed now in Japan for so yeah to, to me the inflation is definitely coming back to Japan so at some point they will have to adjust but you know they've been in this uh, very very low inflation environment for a very long time so they might be slow or even too slow actually to react.
0: So, in that case, then, if, if inflation is back, as you're saying, and as you're experiencing when, when you go there, um, the Bank of Japan's going to have to re- revise even further um, its inflation forecasts and it's going to have to raise rates, isn't it, out, out of negative territory?
2: At some point, that's what's going to happen. I mean, that's what you call normalization, and that's Mm. what they've been looking for for 20 years. So hopefully that's good news for Japan.
0: But they don't seem to want to do it. Governor Ueda seems very reluctant to go down that path.
2: Well, because they had some experience previously that, you know, they had some sparks of inflation and they went back into deflation. But I still think, you know, the environment this time is also slightly different because of the whole geographical positions and the whole rebalancing within the region. Mm. Before you had China and the huge growth of China which was highly deflationary for the rest of the world. Now we're in a different situation where China has you know, reached a certain level of development and you have rebalancing also of the industries back into Japan and Southeast Asia. So I think overall the whole flow is very different than what it was 10 or 15 years ago.
0: Mm. Well, Alex, if um, if the Bank of Japan is wrong and inflation is back, this isn't just uh, uh, you know transitory, it is sustained inflation, are the markets prepared for that? Because it means the Bank of Japan is going to have to start raising rates, doesn't it? Oh, well,
1: of course, the market is not prepared. <laughs> it's, the yen is still around 140, so I think yeah. uh, there that, that could be a substantial unwinding uh, if, uh, we, we, if we perceive that the Bank of Japan would be um, tightening seriously.
0: Right, okay, so that's something that risk we've got to watch out for in the, the remaining months of this year. All right, let's turn our attention to the U.S., The Federal Reserve's preferred measure of inflation fell to its lowest level since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. The U.S. personal consumption expenditures price index rose at an annualized pace of 3% in June. That's down from 3.8% in May. It's the index's lowest level since March 2021. On a monthly basis, the PCE price index rose 0.2% in June, following a 0.1% month-on-month rise in May. That was in line. Uh, with market expectations now the core PC index which strips out volatile food and energy prices and that is the fed's preferred measure of inflation that is more than expected to a 20 month low of 4.1 percent economists had been expecting a reading of 4.2 percent um, what do you think alex and sam is the fed now on top of inflation are there now clear signs that the the trend is downwards and the fed has gained control of inflation
2: Yes, I think in uh, one word, yes, they have done the job and expectations are slowing. Now they have a position they can adjust one way or the other. So uh, it doesn't mean they're going to lose on the policy because uh, the the labor market is still you know, very, very healthy. So they don't have to adjust too much. But... Uh, yeah, I think we're close to the equilibrium for, for the Fed in terms of actions.
0: So what does that mean then, um, if we've got this uh, a, a drop? For Jerome Powell, one of the things that was noticeable last week, said he still thinks it's going to take until 2025, though, to get back to the 2% inflation target. That was probably the, the standout, wasn't it, from his press um, conference. What, what does that mean for, for interest rates? I think interest rates will stay
1: here uh for quite some time uh and if you look at the bond market actually long-term bank actually have been quite weak uh, in the us uh, mm. recently so i think uh, people expect the interest rate to stay at current level for quite some time
0: mm. what do you think sam
2: no i agree i think they've done the they've done the job so they don't really have to act they know that the trend is down so they've got the expect- expectation by 2025 i don't think they want to trigger a hard landing either so uh, for lots of reasons, uh, but uh, so I think yeah, that's uh, the, the the interest rate is probably going to stabilise around here. Do
0: you think they have achieved the soft landing? This famous soft landing that uh, they've been talking about. I mean, Jerome Powell said his economists are now not forecasting a recession this year.
1: I think uh, uh, the economy was slow anyway, but uh, the that that probably is still a stop landing scenario. If you look at the asset market, I think it probably would uh, would be still be strong. So, I think that it also help uh, because of the um positive wealth factor mm. so i think uh it would propel a soft lending scenario because the wage mark the 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 the, the job market actually is, is quite healthy.
0: And that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, this is odd, This the the way this is panning out, because normally you get a slowdown in the economy, there are layoffs, people stop spending, that's what causes the recession, and inflation comes down. This time, inflation is coming down, but companies are not laying off workers, are they? They seem to be deciding, look, what we want to do is we're going to hang on to workers, we'll cut costs elsewhere. This is not like what happened in 2020 or in 2007, 2009, in the last recession after the uh, after of the financial crisis
1: i think they, they, they do have a layoff in the financial sectors and also in the uh, tech sectors uh, uh, earlier but uh, the rise of ai actually brings back jobs so i think uh, this is uh, somewhat odd actually but uh, but that is because of ai development so we are seeing the change in uh, the nature
0: of the jobs I mean, this is important, Sam, isn't it? If, if firms are going to hang on to their workers, then they're still going to get their paychecks, they're still going to be spending. This is the thing that presumably is the reason why um, the economy is not slipping into recession, as a lot of people were, were forecasting at the beginning of the year.
2: Well, I think that's uh, one of the reasons, obviously, the labour market has been very tight, and profits profit are still reasonably healthy, so can understand why you know, at, the, at the low level the, uh, the companies are very reluctant uh, just, to, just to get rid of their workers. And I think I agree with Alex, the AI factor in terms of wealth effect has created a, actually a, a very uh, lucky environment for the, for the Fed because uh, if you hadn't had this new, t- this new technology uh, you know, paradigm, you probably would have a much harder landing.
0: And it's allowing companies to be more efficient as well, isn't it? So rather than having to cut their workers, they can cut their costs by using presumably this new technology.
1: I think, uh, yeah, in, in the long term, but uh, there, there's a risk that they could cut uh, seriously because if you look at the Hollywood strike, Actually, this is uh, due to the, the threat of AI, uh, because many actors and even the uh, script writers actually may be threatened <laughs> by them.
0: Yeah, but it, the reality is that the AI so far is not really costing jobs, is it? May, maybe companies are not hiring as much, but it's not costing jobs.
2: I think it's because so far AI has been used as a tool, not as the the primary means of production. So if you start seeing a complete shift of, uh, of the way how AI is being used, which you might see like, you know, in engineering or even maybe more in creative jobs, then the, the, that might be completely different. So uh, I think this could be a transition that we haven't really seen yet the, uh, the total impact.
0: So the data looks pretty good, doesn't it? With the data that we had out last week, um, inflation is is falling. Um, GDP is holding up. The economy is growing better uh, than expected. Consumer spending is holding up um, as well. And wage growth, while it's still quite high, it did slow, um, according to the data we saw on Friday. I mean, everything we're seeing so far is pretty good for the Fed, isn't it?
1: Yeah, right now yeah, it is. So we probably may still have a, a good environment for for, for, for like an extended period.
0: Yeah. But ha- what about the markets? I mean, U.S. stocks, they're up now for the third straight week. They're up six months out of the last seven. And it's all been on this... Sort of Goldilocks scenario, hasn't it, for uh, the economy that the Fed could bring inflation down without tipping things um, into recession. But surely stocks must have reached the limit or must be close to reaching the limit of what they can do just because of the good economic data.
2: From a pricing environment in the U.S., the market is stretched. So the question now is whether we start to see an effect of a bubble or not uh some people have been calling for radio bar we I think we're nineteen percent year to date on the S and P so definitely we're very very stretched from a from a risk perspective. Um now the question if we we have decent momentum. I know we're in uh, in the summer months so it's always very difficult to to actually predict for what's going to happen. But the momentum has been there. So but yes from a valuation perspective the, the market is definitely stretched and the the you know the the risk gauges around the market are very low. Volatility is extremely low. Price of uh, price of options is very low. So, by any means, it's a, it's an environment where you should be cautious.
0: You can hedge very cheaply at the moment, can't
2: you? Very cheaply. It's been cheap for the cheapest for the last 20 years or something. So.
0: Yeah, of course, I concur.
1: Uh, right now, uh, it is uh, a little bit extended. So, uh, there's always a risk of correction uh, in the short term. So, I think uh, it it is a, a little bit risky, uh, but uh, the momentum is still there. So, um, and probably I think uh, the, the 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 traditional stocks probably may pick up a little bit because of the um, soft landing scenario. So, I think uh, we probably may see some um, uh, some stocks to to to, to still outperform the market.
0: But has this FOMO, fear of missing out, has that abated now? Because a lot of the the funds that were missing out have got back in now, isn't it? And Surely, you know, uh, most funds have caught up now with their weightings.
1: I think in the U.S. probably not. I think uh, in the U.S. actually, uh, this factor already has played a part. Uh, And and if you join in the party right now, probably too late already for those mega megatex. So Mm. I think uh, this factor
0: may not pay out in the U.S. So, if we're going to need a new driver now, if it can't just be the good economic data, because that's pretty well priced in, what could the next driver be that's going to take the market on, a, on another leg up and maybe back to new all-time highs? I
2: think it's very difficult to predict, because I think we are due for a correction. So, the new drivers will probably emerge after that. So, I think, obviously, AI is definitely one of the big key uh, key um, key factors to watch for the future because as I say we're at the very beginning so what will be the impact the rest will be d- depending on how the economic situation completely emerges from this tightening cycle so at this stage I think it's very very early to you know to v- way too early to say well what would be the next factor
0: well, What do you think Alex What's uh, any predictions as to what could be the next driver for the, for the markets in the US, US equities Well
1: it's relatively of I think uh, probably we need something to boost up the traditional stocks uh, because I think the the mega techs probably have already paid their part so we need something to to drive up the expectations for for the traditional sector so I think uh, eventually probably people would perceive every company would become an AI company so 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 that probably would be the way to boost up the traditional sectors.
0: Yeah, put up put AI into your company name and. <laughs> you no, no, get, I you think uh, they they
1: probably would would recruit more people in the AI areas, and then probably people recognize that uh, they have um, more efficient operation because of AI. Say probably we we would have uh, some more. Um, some more um, efficient, uh, some, some more jobs in the AI in banking sectors and, and the, those huge banks will, will benefit more and eliminate those small banks. So I think uh, that is kind of a long-term factor.
0: What about the bond market? So at the beginning of the year, people were saying this was going to be the year for, for bonds because the economy was going to go into recession, although the 10-year yield, it's still about the same level it, as it was. At the beginning of the year so you could potentially lock in four percent yield for for very little risk is is the time coming now for for um, treasuries
2: i think we are not going to see a massive uh, massive run in treasuries the uh in terms of tightening or in terms of yield curve i don't think there's going to be much to be expected so i mean the yields are attractive but as you know versus what the equity has been doing interestingly it's been a it's been very poor performance and uh Alex was mentioning traditional stocks. Uh, it's been very rare, I think, in history that you had uh, such a techniques you know, such a big performance of text versus value. Uh, so. Interesting, interesting times.
0: <clears throat> well, let, let's turn our attention to the, uh, to the local markets. Um, Hang Seng, um, it jumped 1.4% Friday. For the week, the city's benchmark gained 4.4%. And for July, uh, it's up 5.3% with one day left of trading, although it is just up 0.7% for 2023. Alex, you came onto the show last Monday, and you said you thought that um, we were going to see a rebound um, in local stocks and that people will be encouraged by some of the things the Politburo and Beijing has been saying about supporting private companies. It looks like a very prescient comment because it looks like things have turned around based upon the last week. Yeah,
1: I think uh, uh, this is because of the valuation in, in the megatex in Hong Kong actually is so low and the momentum is, is there. And then people are just uh, taking the lead from the mainland investors right now. So I think that the mainland investor sector become a dominant force in Hong Kong, and every people actually is taking the lead from them. Mm-hmm. So um, in the meantime, I think uh, there is no way to short the market here. Uh, but if you want to buy Hong Kong, I think just buy the private enterprises. Don't go to the SOE, uh, because SOE have already paid their part. So and people. I think, we recognize, I think I think, I think the, ch- the change in perception is that the, the author, they recognize that it cannot depend on the old economy and also it cannot depend on the SOEs to boost up the uh, economy. So they need the lead from the private sector again. So I think uh, that's why uh, the market is so bullish on some uh, mega-tax in Hong Kong.
0: Mm. and are you convinced now by all these messages all these 11 point 31 point it seems like every government department is issuing a many point plan to try and boost consumption boost the sector that they're particularly responsible for we heard more on Friday about wanting to support light industry uh, and apparently there's going to be a statement at 3 o'clock this afternoon um, about more support measures for the economy I think my
1: correction is not that important I think I think the Formal factor is more important in Hong Kong right now right. so uh, I think uh, uh, people probably would still uh, 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 b- were still tracing the, the, the taking the lead from the mainland investors, so if one day we see the retreat from them, then probably we will have a correction. but in the meantime, uh, it is very likely we should extension because the the, the, the risk the, 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 the valuation is so low and the momentum is so strong and and we are, we are just at twenty thousand level and it looks like a bull market to me already. So <laughs> if you imagine we we can we can extend to 2122 very easily because uh, we have been lacking behind so for so long. Mm-hmm.
0: Sam are you sort of seeing signs now that maybe things have stabilized after a pretty tough first 6 months of the year maybe in July you know the figures do look better don't they?
2: I mean yeah but I agree with Alex it's very much a momentum a momentum market now. Obviously, the, the uh, Chinese government is coming all the way just to, uh, you know, to reassure on the supply side and um, and the demand side. Now, the question mark whether they are credible after you know after those uh, all these years and what happened for the last five years. So, I think momentum is there, uh, but at some point, if you really want to see sustainability in this uh, in this bull market, we will have to see the systemic um, the systemic changes, and uh, they will have to move from the talk to the action so we need to see how they're going to really implement those plans and if the damage hasn't been too big into these big private uh, companies because you know there's been a lot of adjustments a lot of changes uh, whether the you know the creativity and the uh, actual uh, whether they can take back the lead in terms of economic economic growth in terms of innovation i think at this stage is questionable
0: Mm. Are, are you optimistic that the government now is going to follow this up with uh, with action? I mean, so far, it's been statements of intent, really, isn't it? But are, are you optimistic?
1: I, I think that they, they would put some actions.
0: And, uh,
1: and, and I think probably... Um, the most important part is that they could convince the uh, mega-tax executives and owners. Mm-hmm. That I think is more important than it convincing the investment world. But I think uh, the market, actu- the, the investors actually are just taking the lead from the price action in the equities. So they probably think inside have more information than us. So uh, that is uh, why the market is uh, this looks like very momentum driven, because I think uh, the um, the key change probably will may not be explained to the to the to to to, to 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 the public. I think.
0: I mean what seems to be coming out of what the Politburo said last week is that um, we're not going to see strong monetary and fiscal stimulus instead they'll provide some support for the housing sector they'll try and deal with the uh, the local debt risks in these governments local government financing vehicles but we're not going to see a massive stimulus are we?
1: Yeah I think uh, they probably learned less than 10 years ago so uh, those kind of stimulus actually will not be too helpful uh, the key is to, to hand to, to the key to those uh, companies like Tencent and Alibaba, I think. Mm. Because they think, uh, uh, the, I think the market perceive, they would, they would be more creative. They would be more, they, 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 they have more know-how than China telecoms, China mobile, I think, uh, to, 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 to lead the way. So I think uh, if the market perceive, uh, those companies get back the power, then the, the market will go up.
0: Mm. Alex, uh, Sam, final final word to you then. I mean, we're not going to see a big stimulus, are we? But do you think uh, investors are are prepared for that?
2: Uh, I think they're prepared not to see a big stimulus. I think there is a problem in terms of financing a big stimulus anyway at this stage. Um, Now, whether the sustainability rally is feasible, I mean, I am cautious because the problem is trust. And I think it has been shown that, you know, they, the, 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 the policy makers in Beijing would be ready to put ideology ahead of the markets mm-hmm. so, and I think to be to regain the, the international trust uh, that will take a lot of time because they have to commit and say well now we're market ready we want to put the market we want to put private investors first private companies and people we want to see proof before ju- before tr- jumping back onto the long term and that's only one side of the equation because at the end of the day the, the risking is there uh, people moving the uh, and that's completely independent of China that's I think that's the realization of the the supply chains were too tight uh, because of COVID and that's not going to stop so I think there's a big uh, big long way ahead of China for readjusting this.
0: Okay well thank you both very much there you had Sam Faver, who is Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital Alex Wong Director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. <laughs> I'm pleased to welcome to the studio David Costello, who is the Consul General of Ireland to Hong Kong and Macau and this is the final time I can say that because today is David's final day in the office and he will be leaving Hong Kong uh, in a couple of weeks. Welcome David
3: hi peter it's great to be here with you
0: thank you um before we get on to your time in hong kong which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment i wanted to ask you about ireland in general because i was interested in a report published by the international institute for management development which showed that ireland has climbed five places in the most competitive economy ranking that's according to the 2023 world competitive ranking ireland rose from seventh in last year's survey to second this year, and of the 64 global economies ranked, Ireland is just between Denmark, which is in first place, and Switzerland, which is in third place. How has Ireland managed to do that? Well, it's great to
3: see the Irish economy performing so well, despite the geopolitical tensions, uh, inflation, and other challenging issues that are uh, happening these days. Um, And the reality is, I mean, these rankings are based on four criteria, and the area of business efficiency and um, support for businesses in the economy, and these are kind of key areas in which Ireland really excels. Uh, if you look at of the four rankings, we're ranked first in government efficiency, third in the two others, and the infrastructure is the one where we're lagging slightly, where we're ranked 19 uh, in the world. But nonetheless, when you kind of aggregate them together, the Irish economy is performing very, very strongly, and it kind of... Thumbs up her. Our place in Europe, really, as a and because we're on the fringes of the of Europe, we need to be fragile, agile, and responsive um, to business needs. We are the one of the highest centres, if not the highest centre, for global FDI in the world, and that's because of the business climate that we've created and the government have created.
0: I mean, Ireland has a what well, a population of just over five million people, a GDP of about five hundred and thirty billion US dollars, which is about a quarter of a percent of the world's economy, but yet Ireland 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 seems to manage to consistently punch above its weight um, in economic terms. In fact, I remember not that long ago this year we had a a Eurozone GDP figure, which was mainly boosted entirely um, because of Ireland. So how do you manage to to do this, to sort of overachieve, if you like, um, better than what maybe the size of the economy suggests you should be doing?
1: Well,
3: we we have consistently said. I suppose the the industrial revolution bypassed Ireland. We were the poorest country in Europe when we joined the EU fifty years ago. Today, uh, this year, um, and we get in. And in nineteen seventy three, when we joined, we our average income was half the European average, uh, and our policy really from the 1960s onwards was uh, not to attract high kind of industry kind of um, a focus but to focus on foreign direct investment Mm. and that has you know and the key kind of areas that we built up were education we adopted free education in 1960s and that's created a huge uh, value around education in Ireland a value that's still very strong here in Hong Kong as well Um, and from that um, we've now moved on to providing free third level education places for irish graduates and european graduates uh, from high school and really that focus on on education has been critical you know people look at ireland and they say well, we've got a low corporate tax rate but but it's not low even by european standards it's 12.5% which is not the lowest in europe we're going to move to the global standard of 15% over the coming years but it's not just corporate Hmm. tax that brings companies to Ireland were. That's uh, a bit
0: of a misnomer, isn't it? Because people keep saying, oh yeah, it's because you're a low tax centre, that's why you get all these multinational companies coming to Ireland, but it must be more than just tax.
3: Uh, Absolutely, and five years ago, tomorrow five years ago was my first day in Hong Kong, and when I arrived, you were the first interview I did uh, a couple of weeks after I arrived, Peter, and the message then is still the message now. We're the largest English-speaking country in the European Union. Mm -hmm. We have a common law system like Hong Kong. We are uh, a place that's easy for business to do business. uh, And the government is very supportive of business. But because of our education values, we are now producing uh, per capita the highest number of third-level graduates uh, at PhD level as well. Our uh, universities are focused on industry needs. Uh, and particularly with PhD students in a variety of sectors, pharma, food, science um, and a number of sectors that's relevant to Ireland, particularly IT, fintech, Um, the companies are working with the graduates to ensure that the product coming out of third level is then adaptable and can be moved into industry. Um, So this kind of combination of the language, the ease of doing business, the high skills and talent. Um, and the talent is really interesting because it's not an insular talent anymore. Mm. Uh, the Ireland I grew up in the 1980s was quite one-dimensional. Um, uh, but now Ireland is a really multi society. One in six people in the last census, one in six people were not born on the island of Ireland.
0: Mm, really? Okay. Uh,
3: and so you're ending up with a multi-diverse, talented, inclusive society. Uh, we're the first uh, place in the world to legalize um, uh, uh, same-sex marriage by popular referendum, you know. And so mm. we've become a model in terms of how society has changed from a very insular, conservative, inward-looking society in the 70s and 80s to becoming one of the most outward and inclusive societies now. And that transformation in terms of its social model means that we have a broader view of what talent in the workplace is. You know, it means we're a creative uh, country as well. And so all of these factors are key in how we've transformed a society over the last 30 years.
0: And I suppose that transformation, it, 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 it doesn't need to be said, it, it couldn't have been done without being part of the EU.
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, so this year uh, we celebrate 100 years of Irish statehood where we took our place amongst nations of the world in 1923. 50 years of European Union membership, uh, which has been... Critical in our transformation. And we, we we love the European Union. You know, there's been an awful mm-hmm. lot of negativity about the European Union the last few years, but well, I, we grew up on signs everywhere as we were building motorways in Ireland. You know, then Ireland in the nineteen eighties had not one motorway, you know. mm-hmm. and now, now we have a great web of, of roads. And we grew up on these signs everywhere, saying "built with European Union money." We we know what our European family have done for us, mm. and so when you look at uh, any time there's surveys of happiness with the European Union. Ireland is always in the top one or two in terms of voting about their satisfaction with the European Union. So we're happy and committed members of that. Our finance minister is the president of the Eurogroup. Uh, and so we are at, this, at the core of the European Union in, in, in our outlook and our thinking. Um, so, these are huge factors in, in how Ireland has changed. And I think we should also reference that this year is the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And we can't underestimate the kind of what has, how, the, the peace dividend that has come to the entire island. It's transformed into places north and south, like Belfast is unrecognisable mm-hmm. now than, from what it was 10, 15 years ago. And the same with the whole island now has, uh, has really benefited from that over the last 25 years.
0: Now, I know one of the sets of companies that you've been attracting is Financial services um, firms to come to Dublin, um, and post Brexit, um, you know, Dublin's sort of competing with places like Paris, Amsterdam, Frankfurt to be one of the main European sort of financial hubs. And I remember when uh, we last spoke at the end of last year, we talked about uh, Ireland's strategy for developing um, the financial services sector over the next sort of three or four years or so. How is that plan going? How is Dublin, Ireland overall competing now post-Brexit with all these other um, sort of financial centres around Europe?
3: again a phenomenal when i landed here in 2018 assets under management in ireland was just over 5 trillion euros you know um now it's over 7 in in that period you know in, in a period that has been highly volatile in terms of uh, the economics of the world and we continue to really grow as as an asset base and in terms of a domicile in the European context we are the second largest domicile in, in the European Union but within that there are sectors that even Ireland just completely excels in or we are the world center and and is especially in the listing of uh, ETFs exchange traded funds Ireland is the European center for that and mm. and we have developed a, a certain core skill set in, in in areas within financial services and we're using that as a platform to grow in other spaces um because of the huge FDI in, in IT when that mirrors with our obvious excellence in spaces in financial services when you bring financial services and it together we we have now become a global center for fintech mm. and so what started out in the 70s, 80s, 90s as just FDI projects in big sectors, the, the talent that has grown up around that, the entrepreneurial spirit that has come into Ireland as a result of the, the different type of talent structures that are there, the creativity from the inclusivity that we have in society has meant that our creativeness in terms of forging new sectors in spaces like FinTech, insurtech, RegTech. Reg uh, means Ireland is now becoming a world centre in, in some of these spaces, and, and and that's one area that we're focused on. We're focused particularly in Ireland on because we're an island. We don't want everything growing in Dublin. We don't talk about uh, you know we t- the the world, the rankings of the global financial centres keep talking about cities. Mm. We don't talk about that. We talk about Ireland as a centre for mm. financial services. So we don't want to focus entirely on Dublin. Uh, and as a result, something like 40% of jobs in this space in Ireland are outside of Dublin. And it's a real deregulated uh, sector, or dis- dis- sorry, dispersed sector within, within Ireland. Not deregulated, it's, it's mm. well regulated, but, but very dispersed sector.
0: Yes. Mm. And, and are some of these companies that are, that are coming to Ireland, are they considering maybe having a secondary listing in Dublin, which would, of course, help boost um, the, the, the Irish domestic markets? Um,
3: listings is a challenge. I mean, um, some, you know, we are the European uh, Centre for Listing of ETFs, uh, but the Dublin exchange is no longer a Dublin exchange. It's part of the Euronext family. Uh, which makes it a very stronger base and so there's again dispersed view across Europe on the way listings happen. You know, Mm -hmm. we're we're European Union, it's a single market. You know, you mentioned post-Brexit, there was a consolidation in in different sectors where uh, businesses moved out of London and some businesses moved into London. um, And uh, many came to Ireland in certain sectors, you know, so uh, we we attracted a a sizable number of companies into Ireland. But listing is not our major forte, except in spaces like listing of government debt listing of of etfs uh, and uh, i think particularly in sustainable finance we're now becoming uh, the the green bond center of europe you know so there are certain areas where we have strengths
0: now look you've, you've been irish consul general to hong kong and macau since august 2018 tomorrow isn't it five years ago uh, to tomorrow you you mentioned and representing ireland extraordinarily well during the time that you've been here how how did you um, get into the diplomatic service? What was it that attracted you uh, to, to doing this job?
3: Um, I often describe myself as an accidental diplomat, which is not great in an Irish context because a, a former diplomat wrote a book called accidental diplomat which was quite disparaging of colleagues in, in 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 many ways um but really i am i i i left school uh, high school and was unemployed for a year and started work as a, a clerical officer in the, in the civil service and i i spent uh, the first 20 years of my career in or in general civil service work, working in our social protection department, working in our Irish language and culture department, the Goeltachta, I'm an Irish speaker from from my time in school, and uh, before ultimately ending up in the Department of the Environment, Heritage and Local Government. So my final job was Director of Social Housing Construction in Ireland back in 2006-2008 when i had a budget of one billion euros to mm. to fund social housing development in ireland um but in 2008 there was an opportunity to take a lateral transfer into the department of foreign affairs and this was a career i've always aspired to to do uh, most colleagues in the department tend to come directly in from university they usually achieve the highest scores in mm. areas like international law and international development uh, i did my uh, degrees at night time while I was working. I, I I have my bachelor's in, in what we used to call personal management and industrial relations back in the eighties and early nineties. Um, <laughs> but I went on then to do a master's, uh, an MBS in, in human resources strategy, which is yeah. a, a, more modern phrase. <laughs> <laughs> so so my background is in in, in corporate uh, in management. Lectured in organizational behavior part time as well. Um, but uh, but the opportunity to move into foreign affairs came in two thousand eight and it's been um, it's been a, a great kind of career path for me so it's like a second career for me almost because I've done yeah. 20 plus years mm-hmm. in general civil service um, and it's been a great uh, journey in, in foreign affairs I started out as director of reconciliation uh working in mainly in Northern Ireland Belfast Derry other places around Northern Ireland working uh, to try and promote community reconciliation working with young people with women's groups uh, community groups integrated education and finding projects that worked in terms of bringing the communities together and funding funding kind of uh, engagement to promote reconciliation In 2010, I was given my first overseas assignment, uh, which was Romania, which is uh, a stunning country, one of the Mm. most underrated places in the European Union. Beautiful country. It is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, And it's, uh, you know, one of the underrated places in the European Union, uh, but still an amazing place to go. And when I thought I was going back to Dublin in 2014, I was given the offer uh, to go to Mexico City, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And in Mexico, um, it was a regional role, focused largely on Mexico. And again, people don't understand the scale of, of Mexico. You know, it's uh, 15th biggest country in the world. But because it's south of the USA and Canada, it looks tiny on a map, you know. But I tell people that from Cancun to Tijuana is is from Northwest Ireland to Istanbul in size, you know, and the scale of the place is not understood. But, but not just that, we covered Central America and particularly I, I had a direct role in our uh, presence in Colombia. Uh, at that stage we didn't have a mission in Colombia so we did a huge amount of work because the government had signed their peace agreement with FARC in 2016 and we were bringing people from Northern Ireland to Colombia sharing lessons on the Irish experience of building peace uh, and our peace process and working with civil society in Colombia and working with some of the UN agencies in Colombia to help kind of build support structures around the Colombian effort to to build Mm. peace there uh, and worked on that from 2014 to 2018. And uh, I was given the pat on the shoulder to say, "Would you like Hong Kong?" And, and what was your reaction to that? Um, that was amazing. Yeah, I, I, I was. A, I mean, it's been a, an honor of a lifetime to serve Ireland as Consul General here in Hong Kong, Peter. And uh, and again, it's been a bonus because um, uh, although it's been a topsy turvy kind of five years, I, I I came for four and they extended it by one extra year. So 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 five years in Hong Kong, thirteen years on the road altogether so it's 2010 since I last worked in Dublin so so it'll be uh, an interesting transition back to our capital city uh, uh, to take up a new role in September Uh, sometimes in our trade people refer to it as capital punishment but I have to say (laughs) 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 I I look forward to going back to to Dublin's first city as we like to call it Are you
0: still going to be involved in some way because you have all this experience of Hong Kong five years here, experience of Asia which I thought would be valuable or in uh, in in Ireland, are you going to be involved in some way still in sort of Asian affairs or Hong Kong affairs more specifically?
3: Um, on the contrary depends on how you look at it. In a very kind of uh, geopolitical world, everything's relevant. Uh, but I go back into our Americas, uh, well, our U.S. and Canada relations is where I'll go back. I'll be directly responsible for our bilateral relations with Canada and okay. supporting my colleagues on, on the U.S. side as well. So um, so we have a small team dealing with the U.S.A. and Canada. Now we have 12 missions uh, in, in both countries, uh, and I'll be looking after the missions in Canada and West Coast USA uh, directly in terms of supporting them from headquarters.
0: What what have you learned about Hong Kong as a result of five years here? Maybe something that surprised you or or something that you you just didn't realise, something that you're going to take away as a a lesson from Hong Kong?
3: Um, The first thing I was shocked when I landed on the 1st of August 2018, I was shocked, the drive from the airport into the city uh, was the first thing saying, well, uh, clearly... The perception of Hong Kong is wrong. The perception of Hong Kong as you look at it from outside is this is a this is a concrete jungle. <laughs> and it's not. And I I love to tell ministers that Come from Ireland to Hong Kong, and uh, that Hong Kong's the size of County Longford in Ireland, which is our third smallest county. Mm. And I tell you know, in Ireland, is a population of five million seven on the island. And I, 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 I like to tell ministers, I mean, it's not just that it's one of the smaller counties in Ireland in terms of landmass. Twenty-five percent of it is built up; seventy-five percent is not. Over almost fifty percent is national park in Hong Mm -hmm. Kong, and not just that, the residential footprint um, is just six percent of the entire land mass of Hong Kong. So you have um, seven million people in Hong Kong squeezed into six percent of the third smallest county in Ireland, and you know so so. When you see these type of perspectives about it, you understand how things develop and how kind of innovative, how creative Hong Kong people are. Uh, and straight away, I was, you know, taken by by that. You know, the se- the second bit is, you know, when you arrive, you you are clearly in China. You know, this is uh, 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 one of Asia's big cities. It's um, it's very very much China. Mm-hmm. However. It has that uniqueness of its international history, that um, you know. You know, uh, my view. There's a kind of narrow view is that pre 97 was British, post 97 it's Chinese. You know, and my view is, you know, not. Don't be worrying about the sovereignty of the place. It's always been an international city. Mm. You know, and one of the things that I've kind of focused on when I was here is to to look at the Irish kind of. Story that's been mm. here through the years, and
0: you've often looked for for the Irish heritage, talked about the Irish heritage that's in Hong Kong, which there's a lot
3: huge, and and, you know, 40 streets connected to Irish names, you know Mm -hmm. the Irish DNA in in the schooling system, the Wyand Colleges, the uh, La Salle schools, the La Salle colleges the the Marymount schools um, all with huge Irish DNA connections but but also across other institutions like the G Hospital that had a huge connection with Irish Columban nuns that eradicated TB and one of the great icons of, of Hong Kong is the Hong Kong Sevens and tournament director Mm -hmm. for 30 years was a wonderful Belfast woman, Beth Coulter, who Mm -hmm. sadly passed away a a few years ago. And she went on then to make make Hong Kong, the Sevens, an Olympic sport. So you, when you start to pull through, this is just the Irish connection and you look at all of the other nationalities and the connections some of the european countries that have deep connections here uh, and some of the the southeast asians like i mean the farsi connection here is amazing you know when i mentioned rutting for example and and uh, hong kong cricket and there's there's huge connections in with different nationalities so so what is great about hong kong unlike most cities uh, across asia is its true kind of international Mm. kind of dimension
0: and, and what have been the highlights of your time here? Do you have a couple of highlights that you're going to specifically sort of remember? Um,
3: well, I'm really proud of what the team has done in terms of trying to put Ireland on the map here. Uh, we had some great uh, St. Patrick's Day kind of mm-hmm. events that were, that had to be, we had to innovate very quickly through the pandemic about how we marked St. Patrick's Day uh, on a Personal note, you know, greening the clock tower in 2019 was the first time Hong Kong joined joined the global greening worldwide, uh, and the partnership we had at the Peninsula Hotel, who also greened their facade, um, for St Patrick's Day was 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 was, was fantastic. But ha- having to pivot then to online kind of receptions where we were able to draw together some Irish music and marry that with with um, songs from uh, Anita Mui and 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 others to try and make a this fusion of Irish. Hong Kong uh, heritage Uh, celebrating Bloomsday celebrating Halloween as an Irish festival again trying to bring an understanding to an international audience that many of these events while global in nature are actually origin Irish uh, for, for want of a better phrase Um, So being able to kind of promote that Irish agenda here and particularly working with the financial services industry to really explain and showcase Ireland as a Mm. a huge centre for for financial services, that's something uh, I've been deeply proud of and the connections that we've made in that space I I think will last and my successor will benefit from them and be able to build on on what we've done in terms of sowing the seeds for Hong Kong doing business in in Ireland. But on a personal level, um, I never get tired of looking at Victoria Harbour five years later, you know. In, in, in every other posting you, that people do, you kind after four years, you've put your heart and soul into a place, and you, you kind of feel it's time to move on. And I think Hong Kong has a habit of getting under your skin. Uh, and it's very difficult to leave it, you know, Mm. and the last three to four weeks I've been spending time meeting a lot of friends that I've made over the last five years and and that process of saying goodbye is quite hard, you know, Mm. because Mm. Hong Kong people are amazing Mm. and the amount of friends that I've made, you know, uh, normally you come to a place and the friends tend to be the Irish people that you meet, but in Hong Kong so many people have taken us into their hearts and their homes and, and to be connected with them I, I don't think I'll be, I'm certainly not leaving Hong Kong, I'm taking Hong Kong with me. And in that regard, I, I hope many of my Hong Kong friends will, will come visit us in, in Ireland.
0: Well, which Hong Kong are you taking with you? Because you've been here through a very eventful period. I think mm-hmm. maybe one of the most eventful periods in Hong Kong's history. Hong Kong has changed a lot over the last five years. Even John Lee admits it when he talks about attracting new talent to Hong Kong. He tells people it's not the same place it was. So wh- which Hong Kong do you take with you? Is it now as it is now? Or is it maybe going back four or five years pre-protest? Hong Kong and before the changes that we saw here?
3: Yeah, it, it's, it's been a turbulent few years for Hong Kong, there's there's no question about that. Um, but, uh, you know, I have come, my, my whole background has been about uh, that kind of change that Hong Kong has seen. I was Director for Reconciliation in mm. Ireland, I was working, particularly helping uh, and, and working with civil society around their peace process in Colombia, uh, working with civil society in Mexico to try and navigate some of the uh, difficult human rights issues that, that were emerging there. So so when 2019 happened, you know, uh, again, I was working behind the scenes. I got into a, gra- a very granular level at, at all spectrums of, of, of Hong Kong society. Uh, the sad thing about 2019 is, and uh, we've seen it all around the world, is that, when, when, when certain issues polarize society into camps, you know in Ireland, we talk about orange and green in Hong Kong, they talked about blue and yellow in 2019. Um, when people polarize, uh, that's where difficulties are. And we the real societies, you know we, we know that uh, it's the fringes that are, are you know are gaining politically, but it's the center that really drives society. so So I mean, I've made some great friends here. Across all spectrums of opinion, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, I carry with me the hope that that um, that that polarization can ease. That there's space for people to move back in. The are you middle. seeing
0: signs of that happening? Um, of reconciliation of, of different groups maybe coming together.
3: It, it it'll be a slow process, you know. Um, it, it te- society takes time to heal, you know, and uh, and um, there are. Certainly signs. Uh, people I talk to, you know, recognize that there are challenges, you know, that there are a lot of young people from 2019 that feel a bit disenfranchised or disconnected. Mm-hmm. Many of them, you know, you know, they're the future of Hong Kong, you know, mm-hmm. all spectrums. The future of Hong Kong is not... Just a bit of the society that agrees with government, the future of Hong Kong is the entire society, and mm-hmm. finding ways of engaging them we we talk I talked to you about the success of Ireland has been about building I remember you inclusive. came in
0: once we talked about that your experience of reconciliation in northern Ireland yeah, and yeah. you know and how that maybe could could apply here
3: yeah and we 've seen you know we the government in Ireland and, and the uk as well have being really conscious that uh, Brexit has the has the again was one of these polarising factors in, in mm. politics in Northern Ireland, and and working to build that inclusivity and making sure that the hard won kind of gains of peace were not kind of squandered, um, uh, and so politicians were very very clear in Ireland that you know what 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 the the legacy of the Good Friday Agreement has to has to has to has to has to, has to kind of keep strong and, and progress in Ireland and. Um, and I think, you know, back to my point, Hong Kong is an international city and this international city, you know, find, holding that voice of, as an international city in China, in Asia, is, is, is the success moving forward.
0: You've been a big supporter of the media in the times mm. that you've been here. You've been on my show many times over the years, but in general, you've been a big supporter of the media. You've also supported particularly Irish journalists, who, mm. some of whom have come under pressure um, over the past um, sort of few years. Are you a bit saddened about you know the the sort of what what you've seen and you know about um the the lack of discussion maybe that we have on certain issues where certain voices, certain opinions now um are sort of shut out of society
3: um, again, every society has to find its um find its its own level on that, and you know Ireland knows that. A, a strong independent media um, is in a key part how society develops you know uh, the ability to trans- if we' going if the, the transformation we've had from an insular conservative society uh, pre 1990 to to this really open inclusive society comes from public debate mm. and the, the medium in which you do that has, has to be the media and that freedom of expression and freedom of media allows us to do that um, uh, and the challenge is to create that climate uh, but also we know in Ireland the, the destructive nature that violence brings to society as well. Uh, and the experience that we had with in violence from the late 60s through to 1997 was just horrific, where three and a half thousand people lost their lives, you know. So, so that is not the way forward for society. Uh, uh, and having uh, free and open media is a key part of it um but also we're navigating an era uh where um the internet is driving debate and we see uh the way in which narratives can be framed and uh, and we talk uh, quite a lot of late you know the phrase fake news was not in existence 10 years ago mm-hmm. you know, uh, and we know how narratives that are not based in fact and truth um um really can be damaging and Mm. so the one thing that media does in the editorial standards of virtually all the major international outlets and working with you know i've worked closely with various bureau chiefs and senior reporters here you know and the standards at which they adopt to ensure that what they're writing has a veracity about it is really important and it's important that you know journalists have the ability to report the news and develop strong commentary and not have people ranting on the internet Mm. about stuff that's not based in in fact Mm. and and one important bit of this for example in recent years has been the debate around vaccines and debate needed the debate needed to be rooted in science not rooted in fear Mm. and and so there's a real challenge about how do we make sure uh society can have these inclusive debates, how they can evolve and change, and at the core of that is a very, very strong, uh, robust and independent Mm medium, and that's a value that Ireland uh, really holds strongly. Uh, Our government struggles with criticism, like every other government, but it values civil society and media uh, to you know to ensure that they are held to the highest uh, highest standards of accountability.
0: It's important to have that criticism to, to be able to self reflect afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, David, look, you've been a a fantastic representative of Ireland in in Hong Kong over the last five years and I and I know many other people have learned a lot more about Ireland as a result of you being here and your promotional efforts to to tell us more about you know the country and about the economy the financial services side of Ireland and also all the cultural things as well you've been a regular guest on my program over the past five years so thank you very much for that I wish you every success and, and every happiness for the future.
3: Well, I want to thank you, Peter, for for your support over the five years. It was important um, that we get the message out about Ireland. You have always been generous with your time to allow us to do that. Um, And... I want to wish you well with this new version of the show uh, in podcast format and it is a reflection of the idea five years ago that I would be on a podcast was inconceivable and and it's just and a, it's a reflection are. of how media has evolving and changing and it's important that this space is occupied by serious journalists and researchers like yourself and I wish you well with this programme.
0: Thank you very much David. That's David Costello, who is Consul General of Ireland to Hong Kong and Macau. Thank you very much for listening uh, this morning. Don't forget to take a look at um, my uh, website, peterlewis.substack.com. You'll find my daily newsletter there with a lot more information about things that are going on in Hong Kong and around Asia on the financial and business side. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Michelle Lam, who is Greater China Economist at Societe General Corporate and Investment Banking, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Woods. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.